The products discussed in this podcast are only available in the United States. Thank you, and thanks everyone for joining us this afternoon. My name is Anne O'Reilly, and with me are Clyde McGregor, Mike Nicholas, and Alex Fitch, Portfolio Managers of the Oakmark Equity and Income Fund, as well as Colin Hudson and Adam Abbas, Portfolio Managers of the Oakmark Equity and Income Fund and Oakmark Bond Fund. Like in past calls, our format is to have Colin make introductory comments, after which we will open the line up for your questions. Before Colin begins, I want to remind everyone that manager commentaries and portfolio holdings have been updated for the fourth quarter and are available on our website, oakmark.com. And now let me turn it over to you, Colin. Okay. Well, thanks everyone for joining us. Uh, yeah, obviously it was a rough year for equities and fixed income markets. Uh, that obviously led to a tough year for balanced funds. A 60-40 portfolio was down 16% for the year. This is only the third time in the last 48 years that this portfolio was down more than 5%. Uh, for the equity and income fund, on the fourth quarter, we were up 7.2% versus uh, 6.4% for the Lipper Balance Fund Index. For the year, the equity income fund was down 12.9% versus uh, 14.4% for the Lipper Index. And the since inception returns were up 9.3% versus 6.6% for the Lipper Index. You know, despite beating the index, we are obviously disappointed with a negative return, but we do think, you know, the reset in both fixed income and equity markets provide a much better starting point for 2023 and beyond. And, you know, the markets obviously are have started much stronger and the equity income fund is off to a good start this year. Uh, looking at on the equity portfolio, uh, looking at individual winners for the year, RGA was a winner, Glencore, Champion X, PDC Energy, and ConocoPhillips all had good years. Uh, you'll notice, you can note that four of those are, you know, four of those are energy and material companies. Uh, that's a reflection of much higher oil prices and commodity prices, but also just much better capital allocation for the industry. Even with the big, you know, ramp kind of returns for those, we still think we still do like many of these energy companies and Glencore and they still do represent a reasonable size holding in the fund. Uh, detractors, Amazon, Alphabet, Ally Financial, T-Connectivity, and General Motors. Uh, the last three all have uh, automotive exposure. And it's interesting that all three had very good years. The worry you know, is not what happened during the year, but what's gonna happen in the future. That's a reflection of obviously pessimism about the economy due to HUD much higher interest rates and lending rates. The one thing I would note is historically, you know, going into recession, you're usually coming off a peak for kind of North American uh, auto production and global auto production. This this year is much different. Global auto production is below 80 million. It peaked at close to 100 million. So even if we do go into a recession, you're not going to get a big drop in uh, auto production, which we think should set these companies up well. You certainly may get a drop in uh, auto prices, which would hurt, but we think we're starting in a much healthier uh, point for all these companies. Transactions, we added one new name in the quarter, Masco. It's a buildings, buildings company, makes faucets and paint. We'll have Mike Nicholas, one of the new portfolio managers, talk about that. We eliminated uh, four names. Philip Morris was a good holding. It rallied with kind of the safety trade as people became worried about the economy. 
Consumer Staples usually do well, and Philip Morris did well. Uh, ConocoPhillips was a relatively new holding that did very well very quickly. We decided to sell that and uh, buy EOG, a different oil company. Uh, new portfolio manager Alex Fish will talk about that. We uh, eliminated global payments. That was a tax uh, loss trade, and we decided to buy Pfizer, which we think is equally cheap with better fundamentals. And the last uh, total sale was uh, Johnson Controls, which was another successful stock that, got, that reached our uh, sell target. Asset allocation, we ended the quarter at 58% stocks and 42% fixed income and cash. This is a significant change for basically the last decade where we were well above 60 percent equities for most of that period. You know, we'll talk more about this in a sec, but that is just a reflection of how much more attractive the fixed income markets have become and how much more we like those. I would say, uh, hopefully someone read the letter here, but given the poor year for balanced funds, there's been quite a bit of articles written about, you know, whether they still make sense for investors' portfolio, you know, and, and a lot of that's just due to that this was a very unique year where there was strong correlation between fixed income and equities, typically, you know, typically that when equities go down, fixed income markets go up, especially treasuries. That didn't happen this year, and you had a you know, very poor outcome for both. But that, what excites us is basically, you know, we think this last year was an outlier. We were the you know, reset in valuations should lead to much better future returns. We think will be more in line with kind of uh, history. And the main reason for this optimism, like I said, is the fixed income markets. And with that, I'll have Adam talk about, you know, kind of fixed income and our portfolio and even maybe a little bit about the Oak Park Bond Fund. So, Adam. Yeah, thanks, Colin. Like Colin said, he, uh, the fixed income portion of the fund this year did did really anything but act like a, a ballast. Uh, you know, correlations were high. As many of you know, we went through the largest, fastest hike cycle in, in modern market history and and returns across fixed income aggregate benchmarks really just tracked that hike cycle with some of the worst performances ever across categories. Our specific performance in, an, in a weighting that averaged about 34% overall for, for the fund throughout the year was negative 10.3%. Similar to the equity side, our absolute performance was ugly, but the relative performance was uh, anywhere from 300 to 400 basis points better than the indices, depending on the benchmark chosen. As Colin laid out, I, I think this is an attractive time for 60-40 funds. Uh, I'll co- talk quickly about the specifics of why fixed income in particular looks relatively attractive versus history. First is income, our yield to effective maturity, are close to three times their lows over the past five years in both exposures in the bond fund and the fixed portion of equity and income. Second, we, we really think runaway inflation's been de-risked specifically over the last six months, and I'm more than happy to talk about some of the reasons why in the Q&A. Uh, and, and third, we believe we're just on a much more, and, and, and Colin alluded to this, a much more sound foundation as, when it comes to economic backdrop than we have been entering in slowdown periods in prior recessions. You know, one thing I want to point out is we, we are in a entering a market that is a credit picker's dream. Active management after very many years of little dispersion should now, you know, be active management should be presented the opportunity to prove its worth through credit selection, especially in the, the lower quality categories. Uh, obviously here at Oak Market, we're anxious to do that. That's our bread and butter. We see uh, specific opportunities in less trafficked areas like structured products, specifically uh, ABS, uh, Triple B minus cyclical seem interesting to us, particularly bank preferreds, 
smaller issue sizes, non-benchmark paper, et cetera. So we're pretty excited, um, but you don't really have to be risk-seeking to think fixed income has a place today, even in higher quality fixed income because of all in yields. Uh, many of our favorite investment grade paper are at 6% plus yield in a sideways environment that's pretty attractive uh, versus the volatility we expect of the asset class. The downside protection has grown as well. You, know, you think about the break-even yield when the Barclays aggregate, the index was at a low in August of 2020, right around 1.1%. Your break-even for spread plus rate move was 20 basis points. 20 basis points and your your coupon for the year was wiped out. Today, our fixed income yield within equity and income is just under 6% on four and a half years of duration. And that math means that we effectively absorb 140 basis points or about seven times that that move, combined rate move and spread move before we see negative returns this year. So we really, we, we not only like it outright for total return, but think it has a nice embedded cushion. Uh, we've moved from top decile of richness in the Barclays Act now to like 80th percentile, looking back 20, 20 years on all in yield. So a lot to be encouraged in fixed income. More, more than happy to talk about the topics of inflation, the Fed, hike pass, credit, but I'll leave that to Q&A. Uh, and before I hand it back to Colin, I would like to give a quick mention to the Oakmark Bond Fund, which is our first standalone product, fixed income product that we launched back in June of 2020. Our performance and position is fairly similar to, as you would expect, to BX's fixed income exposure. So I won't recapitulate, but would encourage folks to read our commentary for the fund if they want to see how some of the major topic, how we view the major topical areas in fixed income these days. Uh, it addresses some of the key points uh, that we think will dictate past this year. We're close to the three-year on that fund, and we're in the top decile of, of the Morningstar Intermediate Core Plus category. So we're excited about it. And we're always, Colin and myself, are always happy to take a call or sit down in person. Um, if, you, if you're closer to retirement and need income or have simply reduced exposures during this historical drawdown, we think it's worth a look here. We consider that vehicle kind of a nimble custom value hunting cruiser amongst a category full of, of Titanics or barges, let's say. And I'll, I'll leave it at that. Uh, please, again, email or call Colin or myself for more information on that fund. I'll, I'll hand it back to to the team. Thanks, Adam. Uh, yeah, and so that was a great recap for the fixed income part of the fund. Looking at the uh, equity part, uh, you know, the S&P was down 18%. Our equities were down about about 15%. Uh, you know, the 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 poor year for the S&P has basically returned valuations close to historical norms. So, you know, certainly maybe a little bit of a headwind if the economy does slow, but. Starting kind of a mid-teens PE, we think equity returns should, you know, we would we would expect to be pretty close to historical norms. One thing I would note, there is a higher PE dispersion in the market than normal. That's historically been a good opportunity for our analysts to find new ideas and we can, you know, for us to populate the portfolio with uh, some higher return potential names. So excited on the, the equity side as well. And, you know, I would just end it with, before we talk about a couple of new ideas we put in the funds, is that, you know, with both with the reset in both the fixed income and equity markets, we're, we're, we're very excited about the return potential. And not only, uh, the other thing I would note is not only is much higher return potential for the fixed income, but it also should be much less correlated. And uh, fixed income should not only give a meaningful return, but also dampen the volatility. That's one thing that has happened over the last couple of years 
as yields have got lower and lower, you know, basically fixed income and, and uh, equities have become more correlated. And you, you did lose the dampening effect, so the balanced funds have become a little more volatile than they historically been. So we think with these higher rates, you should not only have better returns, but also less volatility. So we're excited about the positioning. Obviously, it's been a very good start to the year for not only the market, but the equity income fund is off to a very strong start. We're so excited about that. And now I'll turn it over. We have bought two new names over the, you know, more than two, but two of the names we bought over the last couple of quarters. First is Masco, and I'll have Mike Nicholas talk a little about that. Thanks, Colin, and uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, as Colin mentioned, I'll briefly discuss Masco, which was a position we initiated last quarter. You know, Masco is a, is a leading provider of home improvement products, uh, perhaps best known for its coatings line, which is Bear Paints, and its leading plumbing franchise, at least in the U.S., which is Delta. These are some of the strongest and most recognizable brands in their respective categories, and both markets, paint and plumbing, have proven to be quite resilient throughout market cycles due to their heavier skew toward repair and remodel as opposed to new construction, which tends to obviously be more cyclical. The industry structure is also quite good for both companies. They're highly consolidated. The participants are, are very rational, and uh, and even the, the private label penetration tends to be to be very, very low in both categories. You know, the products themselves, paint and plumbing, they're, they're low cost or low ticket for the most part, but tend to be pretty high margin with, with pretty solid pricing power. So just lastly, on kind of higher level business, very low technological obsolescence risk. As you might imagine, uh, you know, we're pretty confident that paint and plumbing products will be around for, for some time. It's our view that Masco's significant improvement in its business mix really over the past decade plus is not being properly reflected in its valuation today. If you look back over the last 10 or 12 years or so, the company has um, disposed of or sold a number of businesses, which we would deem to be much lower quality, a windows business, a cabinets business. Uh, they spun off an, ins an insulation business. And what's left is a, is a much higher margin, higher return business than what we used to see, and it should be much more resilient throughout market cycles as well. Yet despite this business improvement that we've seen, the company still trades at a discount to its own historical levels when it had a much worse business mix and, uh, and a much bigger discount to, to a market multiple than it has historically. So we believe this dislocation, as we wrote in the letter, really presents uh, an attractive opportunity to invest in a in a high-quality business within its industry and in a sector that, that frankly, is, is very deeply out of favor. And just lastly, you know, the management team at Masco is, uh, is a group we think quite highly of, led by CEO Keith Ullman. He's proven to be a, um, a real shareholder value creator and has acted at, at kind of counter-cyclical times very aggressively by uh, initiating accelerated share repurchase programs when the stock gets weak, and uh, we expect him to continue to be a very sound capital allocator going forward. So. 12 times forward earnings for a business like this, we think the risk-reward looks quite compelling. All right. Now we'll have uh, Alex Fitch talk about EOG resources. And Alex wrote a very nice note yesterday on the stru structural reasons why oil prices should be higher. So he is our oil bull and one of our main oil analysts. So I'll turn it over to Alex here. Thanks, Colin. Uh, so as Colin mentioned earlier, uh, the energy sector has been one of the most significant contributors for the fund for both the quarter and the year. And as the stocks have performed well, we've been hearing questions from a lot of investors asking why we still own energy. Uh, and, and concern, I think, that the oil price downturn recently is a sign that we're headed back to the low prices that were the case for much of the last decade. I think you can see from our portfolio weightings that we really don't think that's the case. Uh, and we've added to our position in EOG this quarter. We still have an above-market energy weighting. And 
the reason is, as always, that we continue to see significant value in our energy holdings. Um, from an oil price perspective, we don't believe we're set to return to that low price era of 2015 to 2020. Uh, global oil demand is still significantly below its pre-COVID trend today. And in our opinion, there's pretty good reason to believe that we're going to rebound closer to that trend as China fully reopens and air travel recovers. At the same time, it's becoming increasingly clear that it's difficult to grow global oil supply. Uh, the two historic growth drivers were the U.S. and OPEC, and both are either plateauing or near capacity today. So while a recession could really delay the timing here, uh, we think this sets us up for the prospect of oil shortages in the years to come, and that could mean very good things for oil prices. From a company-specific perspective, over the last decade, we've seen the high-quality oil producers consistently improve their well results and lower their cost structures uh, to the point that the businesses today are profitable at $40 oil and have very high returns at $70 oil. Yet at the same time as the returns for the entire industry have improved, the companies are trading at below average multiples and below private market transaction prices. We think that there's a very small spread today in valuation multiples between the highest quality and lowest quality oil producers. And so we're seeing a lot of opportunity to buy the best companies in the business at what we think are below average prices. EOG is really the prime example here. Uh, it's a low-cost operator, has a great management team. It has one of the best acreage footprints in the United States with big holdings in the Permian and the Eagleford, uh, and it probably has the most uh, drilling inventory in the industry, and yet it trades in line with peers that have worse economics and significantly less runway, uh, and trades at just a high single-digit multiple of its underlying free cash flow, almost all of which is coming back to shareholders. So we see that as a very attractive price, both from a relative and uh, absolute perspective. And despite the strong performance over the last year, we're still happy to own the shares. That I'll turn it back to Colin. All right, thanks, Alex. Yeah, and so well, yeah, we'll turn over to questions here. And like I said earlier, you know, we're excited about the return potential of the portfolio, and we're excited you know, to get off to a strong start this year. So love to answer any questions anyone has. Operator, can we please open the lineup for questions? Right, thanks so much for the call. Appreciate it, and hope everybody's off to a great new year. Just two quick questions. They're kind of related. One to equities, one fixed income. Obviously, the, the fund are you know value investors, and value can mean many things. And you know, if, if you just looked at your holdings, you know, some folks would feel that there's some some more cyclicality to some of the names, such as energy. Some would feel that there's maybe some some of the fallen growth names, uh, which you folks have you know, picked up over the years, like Alphabet, Amazon. I guess my, my first question on the equity side is value overall outperformed growth last year. Um, are the opportunities among the equities on average in general more among some of those quality fallen growth names whose stocks have, have come down quite a bit or still with the uh, cyclical names such as energy, such as financials, or, or again, is it idiosyncratic and you're finding among both? And then with respect to fixed income, um, you know, where are the most opportunities that you folks are finding? Um, you know, I don't use the bond fund, and I apologize, Adam, I haven't, I haven't read that literature. But, you know, uh, are you, you know, it sounds like there's a lot of opportunities there. I know that the fund back in the day had a decent amount of high yield debt. It has not had that in, in many, many years. Wh where is the most of the opportunities? Is it more on, on the structured debt, the securitized debt, where you're you're picking up a lot of yield? Is it is it a combination of that and, 
uh, and some, you know, investment grade, maybe certain bank loans and whatnot. But what's the what's the composition of the fixed income, and what, what are the most opportunities? Because uh, it sounds like it's it's a pretty wide opportunity set. Thank you, thank you all. All right, thanks, Jason. And we'll start with the equity side. I'll turn it over to Adam for the fix. Uh, you kind of hit on all the areas we kind of like right now. You know, the cyclicals. There's a lot of the kind of economically sensitive counties we think are very cheap. You know, the GMs of the world, some of the the financials. Uh, you know, Capital One and Ally Financial. Those have all traded off significantly as you know due to worries about the economy. You know, there each may have a little different reason why you know why we think they're cheap, but Generally, that we have quite a few of those where we would call them, you know, deep value stocks, but haven't been as good as some of the other, you know, some of the more stable areas just due to the worries of the economy. We have, you know, we there are some Alphabet's been a long-term holding. We think it's extraordinarily cheap. It's been a, you know, really good stock for us, but we think it's remarkably cheap. But we have added to the, you know, there's some Amazon is a relatively large holding. We've been adding to that as it's sold off. You know, Oracle we've added we've purchased recently Workday. So we do think there is some, um, there's definitely value in some of these, I would call fallen growth names where they trade at kind of a mid-teens PE and we think they're wonderful businesses with high returns. And then there are plenty of just idiosyncratic stories. You know, I mean, um, you know, something like a Warner, Warner Brothers Discovery, I'd call something in that kind of more of an idiosyncratic that has, you know, kind of companies specific reasons why we think it's cheap. So kind of all, the, I would call all those cheap. And you, I think you've covered the equity income fund for a long time. You know, we do find value across the spectrum. And, you know, we there's times it looks a little growthier. Mostly it looks pretty valuey, but we kind of shift around. We're, you know, we're sector agnostic. We don't, you know, we can be out of sectors. There's plenty, you know, we've really, we rarely had many utilities. Uh, energy's been small holdings up to, you know, sometimes very large holdings. Uh, tech, we've sometimes had very little. Some, you know, now we have more. So we go where we find value, and I think you highlighted three of the main areas we're seeing it. It's kind of cyclical stocks, falling growth stocks, and just you know, idiosyncratic opportunities where we see company-specific values. So, uh, yeah, like I said, we're excited about the portfolio. I think, you know, as a whole, it probably trades at about 10, 10 times earnings or maybe a little higher, but Certainly, I would think it still qualifies as you know the deep in the strong value category. So with that, I'll turn it over to Adam to talk about where we're finding value and fixed. Hey, Jason, it's it's Thanks. nice talking to you again. Um, you know, I think it, it's it's certainly you're right to pinpoint it's not homogenous. It's certainly heterogeneous. It's a fertile backdrop, and and when you reset like we have in both spread and yield, uh, you can imagine. I should say spread and rates. You can imagine that. It's fertile across the quality spectrum. There are places we think are more interesting than others. I think uh, we look at investment grade cyclicals that maybe are pricing in a, a too deep of recession for the consumer. Uh, interest rate sensitive names. We specifically like a few regional banks, again, that are off the run. Um, and then pricing in a very bad scenario. We like moving down the capital structure and, and those particular banks, those are preferred hybrids that have a tremendous carry, but also a great total return outcome. Um, if and when things normalize over the next couple of years, like we, we assume um, they will, There's a, there is a common thread across these names is that they, they generally aren't the benchmark type piece of paper that you will see most of the big 
top five wirehouses initiating and then following coverage on. These are uh, smaller issue sizes and less well-known, and, and that's where some of the opportunity lies. In structured products, it's, it's, it's definitely fair to say that some of the most attractive paper on both relative and total return that we see out there today, we kind of are behaving and have behaved over the last couple of months as, as liquidity provider in, in the Oakmark Bond Fund. And, and, and I think you'll see us step up and nibble on some of the, specifically the ABS structured product uh, exposure um, over the next several quarters in equity and income. Um, I think, again, along the lines of some of the cyclical triple B minus paper I was talking about in the, in the interest rate sensitive stuff, uh, this 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 paper, if it's not for liquidity, it's for uh, a market that tends to be too draconian of view next year for the consumer, uh, a, a deep recession, and one that our team agrees, you know, isn't in the forecast today. We really have seen, in, uh, you know, fundamentals really decouple from value and, and price, obviously. And so I think you'll really see us pick up activity and, and we're excited about the opportunity. I think historically, you guys did have a higher bend to high yield as we've as, as we've evolved specifically over the last four years. You've seen us take more of a balanced view and think of our fixed income exposure not just for a, you know only through the total return lens. Certainly, that's important, but also through how it can help balance um, our concentrated equity positions. And therefore, you've seen us move structurally up in quality to achieve that, achieve that objective, but certainly with the repricing of the markets over the last 18 months, um, you're going to see us get more opportunistic. And that might mean moving down into high yield as well and, 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 and picking up total return opportunity. Got it. Adam, just one last quick thing. I appreciate all your time, Colin. Adam, yeah. is the fact that, that a lot of companies t- turned out their debt uh, because rates were so low and, and, and they went long, you know, there's not really a big debt maturity while coming due for the next, you know, this year, next year. Um, does, does that make you even more comfortable with some of these names? Because obviously, you know, the economy is slowing down, interest costs are higher. Um, at some point, there should be some higher defaults, whether they get back toward, you know, long-term averages or not. But I'm going to assume that a lot of these names don't have a lot of uh, big debt maturities coming to you soon. Does, does that give you some more um, uh, opportunities, uh, even among maybe some names, the fact that that there may not be lots of debt coming due for the next couple of years. Yeah, Jason, I, I, you highlight a, a great point. I mean, I think there's a there's a number of reasons why we think next year, although albeit slower than, there certainly will be a deceleration of the economy from all the tightening that has gone in gone in throughout 2022. Um, that what we think mitigates kind of that tail risk scenario, like more deep recession is, is certainly a stronger consumer, uh, better corporate balance sheets of uh, behavior to these prudent CFOs and CEOs who have extended runways appropriately when uh, all-in yields were just so low. Um, I think we, the lows were around August 2020. And I think you're just highlighting a great point and why um, I think there'd be a real bifurcation within high yield uh, outcomes over the next three years, and you want to be with an active manager who can d- differentiate between the company, who may have a maturity wall, let's say, uh, on 23, 24, 25, is burning cash, uh, has made historically poor capital allocation decisions, um, has lost access to capital markets. You want to be able to differentiate that company, maybe in the single B or triple C space, um, with the company that just has a lot of leverage. 
um, but has a nice growth profile, has monetizable assets, a smart management team, and, and you can kind of paint a good picture of why it can navigate what we think is going to be um, a, maybe a, a, a shallow contractionary period. And so, yeah, it, it certainly plays a role, Jason. Thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate it, and, and, and Clyde, all the best. Okay, thank you. With no further questions, I want to thank you all for your time and interest this afternoon. We look forward to speaking with you again next quarter. Important information. Average annualized total returns for Oakmark Equity and Income Fund investor shares as of December 31st, 2022. Three month, 7.19. Year to date, minus 12.92. One year, minus 12.92. Three years, 4.78. Five years, 4.70. Ten years, 7.31. Average annualized total returns for Lipper Balanced Funds indexes of December 31st, 2022. Three month, 6.41. Year to date, minus 14.36. One year, minus 14.36. Three years, 3.25. Five years, 4. 4.62, 10 years, 6.66. For Oakmark Equity and Income Fund Class I shares, the gross expense ratio is 0.86% and the net expense ratio is 0.84%. As of the most recent prospectus, the investment advisor has contractually agreed to waive fees and or reimburse expenses, with certain exceptions once the expense cap of the fund has been exceeded. This arrangement is set to expire on January 27, 2023. When an expense cap has not been exceeded, the gross and net expense ratios may be the same. Performance data listed represents past performance and is no guarantee of, and not necessarily indicative of, future results. Total return and value will vary, and you may have a gain or loss when shares are sold. Current performance may be lower or higher than quoted. For most recent month-end performance, visit im.natixis.com. Performance for other share classes will be greater or less based on differences in fees and sales charges. Performance for periods less than one year is cumulative, not annualized. Returns reflect changes in share price and reinvestment of dividends and capital gains. If any, the views and opinions expressed may change based on market and other conditions. This material is provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. The index information contained herein is derived from third parties and is provided on an as-is basis. The user of this information assumes the entire risk of use of this information. Each of the third-party entities involved in compiling, computing or creating index information disclaims all warranties, including, without limitation, any warranties of originality, accuracy, completeness, timeliness, non-infringement, mercantility and fitness for a particular purpose. With respect to such information, definitions of terms used in this material, Lipper Balanced Funds Index is an unmanaged index which tracks the average performance of the 30 largest balanced funds according to Lipper Inc. S&P 500 Index is a widely recognized measure of U.S. stock market performance. It is an unmanaged index of 500 common stocks chosen for market size, liquidity, and industry group representation, among other factors. It also measures the performance of the large cap segment of the U.S. equities market. Russell 1000 Value Index is an unmanaged index that measures the performance of the large cap value segment of the U.S. equity universe. It includes those Russell 1000 companies with lower price to book ratios and lower expected growth values. Russell 1000 Growth Index is an unmanaged index that measures the performance of the large cap growth segment of the U.S. equity universe. It includes those Russell 1000 companies with higher price to book ratios and higher forecasted growth values. Bloomberg U.S. Aggregate Bond Index is a broad-based index that covers the U.S. dollar-denominated, investment-grade, fixed-rate, taxable bond market of SEC-registered securities. The index includes bonds from the Treasury, government-related, corporate, mortgage-backed securities, asset-backed securities, and collateralized mortgage-backed securities sectors. S&P 600 is an index of small-cap stocks managed by Standard & Poor's. It tracks a broad range of small-sized companies that meet specific liquidity and stability requirements. This is determined by specific metrics such as public float, market capitalization, and financial viability among a few other factors. P.E. Trailing. Ratio is the weighted harmonic average of the price to earnings. P.E. Ratios of all the stocks in the portfolio. P.E. Ratio is the ratio of a stock's price to its earnings per share for the trailing 12 months. Does not include options. This excludes negative earnings. Tips is the inflation protected securities move with the rate of inflation and carry the risk that in deflationary conditions, when inflation is negative, the value of the bond may decrease. The Durbin Amendment. Durbin Act is a part of the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act that limits transaction fees imposed upon merchants by debit card issuers. The amendment, named after U.S. Senator Richard 
J. Durbin and introduced in 2010, proposed to restrict these interchange fees, which averaged 44 cents per transaction based on 1% to 3% of the transaction amount, to 12 cents per transaction for banks with $10 billion or more in assets. Absolute Performance Standard is a theoretical benchmark for quality control. OEM, original equipment manufacturer traditionally is a company whose goods are used as components in the products of another company, which then sells the finished item to users. Intrinsic value is a measure of what an asset is worth. This measure is arrived at by means of an objective calculation or complex financial model, rather than using the currently trading market price of that asset. Global Industry Classification Standard, JICS, is a method for assigning every public company to the economic sector and industry group which best defines its business. It is one of two rival systems that are used by investors, analysts, and economists to compare and contrast competing companies. Basis Points, BPS, refers to a common unit of measure for interest rates and other percentages in finance. An asset-backed security, ABS, is a debt security collateralized by a pool of assets. Barclays Capital US, Government Credit Bond Index EDF Tracker is an index measures the performance of US, dollar-denominated US, Treasuries, Government-related and Investment-grade US corporate securities that have a remaining maturity of greater than one year. ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance Criteria and are a set of standards for a company's operations that socially conscious investors use to screen potential investments. Top 10 Holdings for the Oakmark Equity and Income Fund as of December 31, 2022. Alphabet CLA, 6.4% of Portfolio, Glencore, 5.3% of Portfolio, HCA Healthcare, 4.8% of Portfolio, Bank of America, 4.2% of Portfolio, TE Connectivity, 4.0% of Portfolio, General Motors, 3.8% of Portfolio, Amazon.com, 3.7% of Portfolio, Reinsurance Group, 3.7% of Portfolio, Board Warner, 3.5% of Portfolio, Carlyle, 3.5% of Portfolio, The Portfolio is Actively Managed and Characteristics, Holdings or Sectors are Subject to Change, References to Specific Securities or Industries should not be considered a recommendation, For Current Characteristics, Holdings or Sectors please visit our website, All Investing Involves Risk, Including Risk of Loss, Fund Risks, Equity Securities are Volatile and Can Decline Significantly in Response to Broad Market and Economic Conditions, Value Investing Carries the Risk that a Security can Continue to be Undervalued by the Market for Long Periods of Time, Foreign Security may involve heightened risk due to currency fluctuations. Additionally, they may be subject to greater political, economic, environmental, credit, and information risks. Foreign securities may be subject to higher volatility than U.S. securities, due to varying degrees of regulation and limited liquidity. Concentrated investments in a particular industry may be more vulnerable to adverse changes in that industry or the market as a whole. Fixed income securities may carry one or more of the following risks. Credit, interest rate, as interest rates rise bond prices usually fall, inflation and liquidity. Below investment-grade fixed income securities may be subject to greater risks, including the risk of default, than other fixed income securities. Credit quality reflects the highest credit rating assigned to individual holdings of the fund among Moody's, S&P or Fitch. Ratings are subject to change. The fund's shares are not rated by any rating agency and no credit rating for fund shares is implied. Bond credit ratings are measured on a scale that generally ranges from AAA, highest to D, lowest. Before investing in any Oakmark fund, you should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, management fees and other expenses. This and other important information is contained in a fund's prospectus and summary prospectus. Please read the prospectus and summary prospectus carefully before investing. For more information, please call 1-800-Oakmark-625-6275. This material is provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. The views and opinions expressed are as of January 12, 2023 and may change based on market and other conditions. All investing involves risk, including the risk of loss. Natixis Distribution, LLC is a marketing agent for the Oakmark Funds, a limited-purpose broker, dealer and the distributor of various registered investment companies for which advisory services are provided by affiliates of Natixis Investment Managers. Add tracks, 1478458281, expiration date, April 30, 2023, POD 60, December, 2022.